The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Father, uh, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to live, die, rise, and ascend, and we know that he's coming back to make all things new. One day, someday, we will have a home and we'll never have to move. One day, someday, we will know uh, the future. We will experience the future in reality, and there will be no homelessness or impermanence or wonder or anxiety, and we long for that day. But, oh God, in the meantime, we pray for patience. We pray for faithfulness. Oh God, your people of old uh, followed you in the wilderness uh, by the cloud during the day and fire at night. And so we pray for a cloud. We pray for fire. Uh, we pray that you'll continue to guide us because we know that you're not asleep. We know that you have not wavered. We know that you have a plan for us, and we trust you. And Lord God, we pray that this next space would be used by you to propel the gospel forward to the city and so far beyond. Um, that God, those in downtown and beyond would know the hope of Jesus Christ and would know the reality that to love you and to be loved by you is to love our neighbor and to lay our lives down for our neighbor, to fight for justice, to fight for equity. And so God, uh, we just pray that the kingdom would come in more power through the work of this body. Um, and Lord, we trust you and we give ourselves to you and we do so now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hillary, you coming? You here? You know what? Looks like I'm reading uh, this morning. Uh, that's perfectly fine. Let's go. What now? Oh, thank you, Aaron. I, I thought you would never ask. This Wednesday um, from 9 to 3, we're having a packing party right here at Claiborne Temple. Um, and so we just asked you um, to sign up. There'll be a sign-up sheet in the back. You can also uh, go to the Realm, um, can't you, and sign up there? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Or just, just email Aaron, Aaron at downtownchurch.com. Um, is that all? Is that good? All right. Good deal. Thank you. It's amazing what I can forget from that chair to this pulpit. Um, uh, we do have a bird in our midst this morning, and those sitting in the balcony, uh, I, it's probably going to distract me a whole lot more than you guys, uh, because I can see him. He just, he or she, uh, just keeps flying from one wind to the other, so I'll just be, you know, if I raise my hands at any point during the sermon, it lands on my hand, that will be a sign. I'm not sure of what, <laughs> or on my head, I mean, he does something else on my head, that'll be another sign. Uh, not sure what either, but anyway, um, let's look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that they, uh, there may be fairness. For as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, yet another challenge put before us as your people this morning. I need your spirit. God, I'm a broken vessel. And I need you, by your grace, to use my weakness for your glory. Lord God, only you can empower a people to be a family and a community that reflects your model for your church, your very body. Lord God, I can't generate, I can't produce that in my own life, much less the lives of those before me. But we know your spirit working through the power of your holy, infallible and inerrant word can do just that. That we can be the alternate community of heaven that we can be a, your kingdom pointing forward to the hope of glory, of a true and real reality that we will know one day, someday. So God, I pray that you would work in each heart, that you might make us a community that exhibits the grace of giving in joyful, sacrificial ways, even in the midst of severe trial and even in the midst of extreme poverty. Oh God, we need you to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This text has got me thinking a lot this week about my own family. Um, and, and really how our family um, is a, a micro-economy of sorts. When we have a family dinner now, um, we have 25, 26, 27 people around our table, four generations sometimes. And as I thought about that, really kind of the challenge of how do, how does, how do all of those 25, 26, 27, I guess whether or not we invite the crazy aunt, you know, or not, or uh, how, how, do we, how do we get everyone fed? How do the needs at the table get met? 
And the reason I had to do a lot of work on this is because it happens naturally. I don't have to think about it much. Rachel, my wife, thinks about, obviously, the organizing of it and the structure of it, and so she thinks about it more than I do. But in terms of how it happens, we all just know it's going to happen because everybody's going to bring what they can, and we know what each person's ability is, and uh, with aging parents now, their ability may be a little less than they were. Uh, maybe that casserole doesn't taste quite as good as it did 15, 20 years ago. Um, we know that Kylie, who's four years old, is not going to bring a casserole. We know that Braden is not going to, uh, you know, uh, bring a, a, you know, a um, leg of lamb that he roasted overnight. I mean, who's, you know, be nine this week. We, we, we know our family, we know their ability, and we know what we all have to do for everyone to eat, and we do it, and we do it gladly. It's a micro-economy, and it really extends beyond that. I remember when Rachel and I were um, in Clinton, Mississippi, and I was attending Reformed Theological Seminary, and um, we were being supported by our Sunday school class here at Independent Presbyterian Church, um, you know, a certain amount a month, but it, it, it was not meeting all our needs. And so Rachel and I were doing everything we possibly could to make sure that everyone got fed, that we had a roof over our heads. I cleaned the gym at Reformed Theological Seminary. I delivered pizzas at Domino's uh, Pizza in Clinton, Mississippi. Rachel uh, ran a business sewing curtains. She's she probably mad at me. Don't she forgot how to sew after that, so don't ask her to hem anything. Uh, don't ask her to make curtains. Uh, but when we were in seminary, she was an amazing seamstress. Uh, lost that ability somehow, but um, anyway, an amazing seamstress and, and really supported our family in significant ways um, during that time and even after that time. Um, and it's interesting, we didn't make our children feel bad about it, just like at our family suppers. We don't say, okay, everybody line up according to how much you brought. No, the children at the table, they just assume that they can take and eat because we're a family. As we look at this passage, there's no way to understand what Paul is getting at unless you understand that our biological families are not the end but the way our biological families work are a shadow of, if you will, of how the, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to work, not the other way around. I, I wish I could be rebuking families for neglecting each other, uh, and they should be like the church family. And yet I've got to use the biological family because the church family is really kind of a consumer-oriented thing that we can take whenever we need it or want it, and we can find another one when we are done with this one. And that is not how the church was designed to work, and it's really why the church is not working. It, it really is why Memphis is the, I guess it still is, maybe at least one of the poorest cities in the country, and yet one of the most churched cities in the country. Um, because we've not shared each other's burdens. Uh, we have viewed other people's burdens as burdens, and we've moved away from them. And so what we have to do as we 
understand what Paul is doing here is we've got to make some real paradigm shifts and we've got to make some shift in our, our living, the way we live our lives. And it's the only way that we're really going to do what is being displayed here in 2 Corinthians 8. Um, and this is what Paul says in verses 13 through 14. Here's a picture of this microeconomy that the church is to be. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, and that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. If we're going to get to this point where, um, you know, what mine is no longer mine anymore, it's ours, and what yours is no longer yours anymore, but it's ours, the gospel has to do tremendous work. So let's look at it. The first thing that I want us to see is that it's really expand out this whole idea that the grace of giving is communal, not merely individual. We have to see that, that, that Paul is talking about a community here. Um, one of the most influential books that I have read is uh, written by Rodney Stark. It's called The Triumph of Christianity, and it details the history of the early church in a very practical way. And um, in one of his chapters called uh, Misery and Mercy, he talks about how the church in the Greco-Roman world was known as a, a community, an alternate community, this alternate community of heaven that blessed the city and blessed the world. Now, listen to what, how he describes it. Um, first, he talks about the contrast. The corollary that because God loves humanity, Christians may not please God unless they love one another, was even more incompatible with pagan convictions. In other words, the reality that they were a community that said, we can't just love each other, but we've got to embrace those around us. Not just the poor among us, but the poor in the city, the poor in the world. He said that was radical. It was incompatible with pagan convictions. But the true, truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. As Cyprian, the martyred third century bishop of Carthage explained, there's nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attention of love. Thus the good was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. So, do the poor in Memphis, Tennessee know about downtown church? Do the sick in Memphis, Tennessee know about that? That's what he's saying is that it wasn't just that they take, took care of each other, they took care of the world. This wasn't just talk. In 251, the year 251, the Bishop of Rome wrote a letter to the Bishop of Antioch in which he mentioned that the Roman congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. This was not unusual. In about the year 98, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, advised Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, to be sure to provide special support for widows. As the distinguished Paul Johnson put it, quote, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire uh, which, for the most part, lacked social services. Tertullian explained how this welfare system functioned, quote, there's no buying or selling of any sort of things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, it's not made up of 
purchase money as of a religion that has its price. In other words, we're not charging people to be accepted by God or come to church or, you know. Um, on, on the monthly day, if he likes, each one puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure and only if he is able. For there's no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund. For they are not taken thence and spent on feast and drinking bouts and eating houses, I guess restaurants, I don't know, uh, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls of destitute means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house. Those are our ancestors. What Paul is describing here is just that. Paul is traveling from northern Greece through Macedonia down um, to Corinth, the churches in Corinth. And he is, one thing he's doing, he's preaching the gospel, he's ministering the gospel, he's checking on the churches that have been planted in those areas, but he is also collecting um, a gift for the poor Jewish converts in Jerusalem. And so you have Gentile churches in Greece supporting Jewish uh, poor in Jerusalem. So it's crossing um, cultural, ethnic boundaries, if you will, in the church. That was radical of its day. Um, And yet what he's doing is he's highlighting to the churches in Corinth how the churches in Macedonia gave sacrificially out of their severe tribulations or trials with this incredible joy that welled up that was even out of their, drove them through their extreme poverty to give sacrificially to the poor Jews in Jerusalem. But when he gets to uh, Macedonia, he, you know, he's telling Corinth, Corinthians about the Macedonians, but if you go to chapter 9, verse 2, you see that when he was in Macedonia, he was telling the Macedonians about the Corinthians. And in, in there he says, among the churches of Macedonia... Um, let me get down here. Oh, yeah. In, in, in verse 2b, he says, and your zeal, talking about the Corinthians, has stirred up most of them, the Macedonians... This is how change happens. Because as I look at the church today, I'm like, how are we going to get out of this? How are we genuinely going to become a community that's like this? Because if I'm, you know, dealing with the scriptures with integrity, that is my desire for us to become like this. Really. Not just, you know, to put a thermometer or whatever, a gauge on the wall and say, hey, let's raise this amount of money. And then we know we've arrived. No, we know we've arrived when we are a community like this. I don't, know how much it, it, I don't know how much money that results in, but when we become a community that out of no matter what our financial situation is, we, know, we see each other as uh, our brothers and sisters as our brothers and sisters. And the, the micro-economy of our families becomes the micro-economy of the church. And it crosses every boundary. That's when we know that we've gotten where we are. But this is how change is going to happen, is when we begin to do that, when we begin to evidence that among us. And when that evidence itself among us, then there's going to be change. Um, Cultural experts call this cultural diffusion. 
In other words, the way movements start is when, you know, when it, when it get, takes hold, when an idea takes hold in a community, it starts to spread in that community and then it spreads outside of that community. I understood this. I, we spent a month in Europe uh, last summer and I came home and bought a little espresso machine. Why? Because I'm hoity-toity and I like to drink. No, because everywhere I went, everybody's drinking espresso. It's about all I could drink. And so I started drinking espresso. And because of cultural diffusion, I'm like, man, I want, to, I want this to continue on. So I drink espresso like a European. Their culture had an impact on me. And it's changed a little bit, altered a little bit of my taste and my likes. And that's what we are to do here. I'll never forget... Uh, Frank Barker, that may ring true, may ring true to maybe three people in this room, if that many. But Frank planted a church in Birmingham, Alabama called Briarwood Presbyterian uh, back in 1962. And uh, Frank was just a, an incredible guy. Um, and he, uh, he and I worked, I say we worked together. I was a young church planner um, in his same denomination, you know, 30 years ago, and I would go to meetings and basically listen, and Frank Barker was kind of the, the sage guy, and he would tell stories about the early days of Briarwood, and one thing they did was they determined from the beginning to give 50 cents of every dollar donated to the church to missions. <laughs> He said, we are going to spend 50% on us and 50% on world missions. And even to today, they have, I looked it up online, they support over 250 missionaries all over the world, over 60 different mission agencies. Uh, they still give more away than practically any church, uh, at least in that denomination. Um, and, and yet what that did, that stuck with me. In every church that I've been a part of, from the earliest, from the first dollar donated, we have given a portion of that to missions. Why? Because of Frank Barker. Now, we don't give 50%. Maybe that's because you're, I don't have the faith. Maybe we need to do that. Yeah, let's talk about that sometime. But, but that had an impact on me. And that's what Paul is saying. Change happens as communities change. As individuals change, communities change. And this is what God has called us to. This is all set out in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 15, we read this. But there will be, I love how this, this version, uh, the ESV states it, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Some translation says there must not be any poor among you, because God is blessing you in the land. But the, um, the, the principle is there, and he fleshes it out in uh, the remaining verses. He said, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. Like, oh, that's perfect timing. See, every seven years, they had to forgive the debts um, in that microeconomy called Israel. Um, so somebody comes to you in, you know, uh, about 
year six and a half, six and three quarters, you're thinking, oh man, I've got to give you this loan and forgive it in about six months or three months or whatever it is. said, so you can't think like that. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open your hand to your brother to the needy and to the poor in your land. Paul is addressing this in the New Testament. I mean, this is what we see here. There are poor in Jerusalem, and he's collecting this gift for the poor in Jerusalem. He refers to it in Romans 15. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia, here he is. He's, t- he's telling the stories of the other micro-communities. Um, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. You see, friends, the gift of giving is not a spiritual gift for some. Now, I believe that some have the gift, but it gets a little bit more complicated because we have all received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's His grace that fuels our giving which is our second point. And so we can't just say, well, there's some among us that that really have that gift and it's all up to them. No, what's being portrayed here is a community of sacrificial givers because of love. It's a community thing, not just an individual thing. Secondly, the gospel uh, or gospel generosity is more of a compulsion than a discipline. Giving is more about being compelled than ordered. Last Saturday, uh, I preached in New Orleans Sunday morning, and I um, was at dinner last Saturday, and Rachel uh, texted me and told me that L. Gieselman passed away, um, little seven-year-old L. And she is, um, the Gieselmans are friends of many in this body. Many in this body have been taking them dinners for the last six or seven years. Um, two of their girls now have died, two of their three um, girls have now died from Batten's disease, which is a terminal brain disease. And um, rarely have I witnessed um, faith, um, you know, um, just, I guess, faith fleshed out in, in two young people uh, like Frazier and Dana Gieselman, the parents of little L and Mila. And um, they have watched their children suffer. Batten's disease, is, it, it should make you believe in the fall if you don't believe in it. It's horrendous. Um, you know, the children lose all capacity um, to take care of themselves. They're, you know, the, the pain in their head, the migraines are absolutely unbearable. Um, they can't take care of themselves. They have to take care of them all the time, do everything for them, uh, change their diapers, to, you know, six or seven-year-old. I mean... Horrendous, horrendous. And this is what their life has been the last six years. And, and I know them, and I know their hearts, and I know that if they could have changed places, they would have. I mean, parents, isn't that right? 
I mean, wouldn't we change places with our children when they are suffering? Yes. I mean, that is what a parent does. When Paul says, he points to Jesus, he says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What he's showing us here is that a father sent his son to change places with you. That he saw your sickness, he saw my sickness, he saw our sin, he saw our condition, he saw how selfish we were, he saw that we were enemies, as we sang this morning in reckless love, and he responded with a reckless love. He, he knew that we would rebel against him. He knew that downtown church would exist right here, and we, even though we sit here on Sunday mornings, for the most part, most of us still stay with our, in our cultural comfort zones even though we're here on Sunday morning. He he knew that. He knew that we would give more to our our real families as opposed to our church family. He he knew that. And what did he do? He changed places with us. I mean, Christianity, it it is um, rational. It is a a, a set of truths. Um, I I believe in a literal resurrection. I believe in a virgin birth. I, I believe... Um, that Jesus was tempted in every way and um, yet was without sin. I believe that he was my representative, but that belief has got to compel something more than just intellectual belief. It has to reorient our souls and our lives. That's the power of the gospel. And it's because of this power of the gospel um, that Jesus physically came It's why he took all of his wealth, and he's not talking about just physical wealth, because really for most of Jesus' life, he did have money. I mean, when he said, you know, the the foxes have holes, the birds have nests of the air, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his hand. Well, he did have a place to lay his head when he was in Joseph and Mary's house. I mean, we see him traveling. They had money to take the whole family down uh, to celebrate the Passover when he was a child. Um, He was at a, 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 you know, a wedding feast and and eating and drinking at a a wedding feast. I think he's talking more about his ministry, his three-year public ministry time. He was homeless and he was poor. Um, and, and he certainly died destitute and poor, no doubt about it. But the kind of poverty that Jesus really suffered was leaving the throne room of heaven to come down to trade places with you and me. It was the humiliation, the creator becoming the created. You say, was he created, Richard? Hear what I'm saying. To become flesh, okay? To live in this body, to have to mess with the devil in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. To lower himself, to have to put himself in the position of being tempted by the devil for you and me. Why? Because he traded places with us. He became poor so that now this morning you can be called sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters of God. He has adopted you and me. He has paid the price for our sin. He obeyed the law in our place to take the burden of the law off of our shoulders so that now we are free to live in light of his love. And he was raised from the dead 
in order to give us a hope beyond this life and a security beyond this life. You see, friends, in 1 Corinthians, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he is dealing a lot, and we dealt with this on Easter morning, he's dealing a lot with uh, moral sin, sexual sin, uh, marriage, and so forth, and divorce, and all of that. However, in chapter 15, he gives the longest treatise on the resurrection. Why? Because he wanted to tell the church what he's telling them here is you, you are more than your sex and you can trust Jesus with your str- uh, sex and with the party because you're going to miss out on nothing with Jesus. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. Whatever you've lost in this life, you haven't really lost with Christ because death is not the end because Jesus went in the ground and came out of the ground and he appeared to people. He had a better body than he had before. He was still physical. He was eating and drinking. Thomas could touch the, 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 the nail prints in his hands and, and, and feet, but he could pass through walls. He could just appear. I don't know what in the world that is, but it is the resurrection body. It's both physical and more than physical. Metaphysical. I don't know what the word is. Now, why is that important here? Because what Paul is telling us in his second book is, You are more than your money. Your security is not in your bank account. Your identity is not how much money you make or don't make. There is no shame in being poor, and yet there is no great identity by being wealthy. Why? Because God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If I have money, it's only because God has granted me that money. But Richard, I've worked hard. Yes, you have. But so do those in poverty. Working hard, yes. Are there natural? Should we work hard? Yes. But I've told you this a number of times. I I firmly believe this. I'm really here today. There are guys much more, much more, uh, much smarter than I better preachers and I, better leaders than I. I'm here because God wants me here. I ask him all the time, God, why me? Because I know my limitations. And this is how we are to live. You see, the gospel is to motivate a radical trust that we are more than our money. When he says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, the word know is is really, it has real sexual connotations. It's really blasphemous what he's saying. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, like you really know it. Like in an intimate way, you know it. What is he saying? He's saying, you know Jesus. Why? Because he is the lover of your soul. He is the one that you were made for. The Bible begins and ends with a marriage. And what that means is we were built for marriage, but we have a husband. We are the bride. Jesus is the husband. We will be wed to him one day, someday, and we will live out of the marriage of the bride of Christ and uh, Jesus being the husband. And that is ultimate fulfillment. That is ultimate satisfaction. That is, is, is ultimate purpose and meaning. And that's where we're headed. 
You can't understand Christianity without this context of marriage. We look at our bank accounts, we look at our money, we look at our things, and we depend on them as security and comfort. When God says, no, you lean into Jesus as your security and comfort. Literally, literally live as if he were your wealth. That's what it means to be a Christian. The one thing that you can't lose is Jesus. You can lose your money. That terrifies us. You can lose your wealth. It's our identity. But you can't lose Jesus. And then thirdly and finally, love is to be the limit of our giving, and joy is the context. Wow. How much did we give? I mean, the Old Testament says 10%. The New Testament plays a dirty game on us. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Okay, okay, that's good. The whole grace thing's good. Tell us how much. Wow. Amy Carmichael said, you can give without loving. I think we're all evidence of that. But you cannot love without giving. Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. You see, the Macedonian, the, the Corinthians had given a pledge. If you really study this passage, we have, don't have time to even nearly get as deep as I would love to get into this passage, but the Corinthians made a pledge a year before, and Paul is just coming to say, hey, are you ready to pay up? Okay, they've made a pledge, but the Macedonians have actually given the money. So the Macedonians have passed the test. How? In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not even as we expected. See, how we handle our money shows the sincerity of our love. Here's the problem about preaching about money. Oh, I gotta get, here's, here's the takeaway most of us get. Oh, I've got to get more money. Yeah, you do. But you can give more money and your heart not change. And, and that's the point of this. The point of this is that they, they gave out of joy. They, you know, the law is not going to move you to give in the midst of extreme poverty only the love of Jesus will, will move you to that end. I saw this yesterday. I was at uh, Silas, one of my grandchildren's uh, fifth birthday party. And, you know, we were at the time when uh, the kids were opening, or Silas was opening his presents. And there was this one little boy, and he had this big, you know, present. Now, I could tell, he, he, he failed to get in the circle in time. And so he was outside of the circle with his present, and he could not wait to get in there to give this present. And I, I think, I can't remember, it was some type of Nerf, you know, gun or, you know, 500 rounds of, you know, Nerf bullets. And he was so excited. And he finally got it in there. I said, dude, that is awesome. He said, yeah, I got it at Target, you know. <laughs> oh, he was so proud that he got it at Target. I have no idea what that was about. But uh, um, he was so excited. The joy of giving. The joy of someone else receiving the gift at the point of his sacrifice. 
Friends, can you imagine if we start living like this, if we started looking at the poor among us, the poor in downtown, the poor, and we said, you have to let us give. You have to. Well, I don't really, no, you have to let us give. Do you understand that is the power of the gospel when we really understand it? When I am captivated by the fact that my body is going to be raised one day, that, that this treasure is in a jar of clay, Paul talks about that in, um, in 2 Corinthians 2, that this treasure, this guy, it's just in a jar of clay. This, this, it's already, man, you know, this jar of clay looked a whole lot better 10, 15 years ago than it looks now. It's going to look a whole lot worse, though, in, in the next 10 or 15. It's just a jar of clay. But there's a treasure inside this man, and his name is Jesus. And that's hope, and that's life. And what that means is, if I die today, I will be raised with Christ. Death is just an immediate elevation. Death is just an immediate, uh, um, you know, um, exaltation. Death is moving me to a better existence. Because Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose. And why am I looking, therefore, at my money as my comfort? Dorothy Day said, I'll, I, really only, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. You know, it's easy for us to give to our families. It's easy for us to give to those we love. The reason we're not giving to each other is because we don't quite love each other as much. Friends, what we've got to repent of this morning, forget the checkbook for a moment. Forget the bank account for a moment. Put, just forget that for a moment. What we've got to repent of is I'm not loving my neighbor as God loves me. If I understood what God did for me, I would make no distinction between my true brothers and sisters and my family, my biological family and my church family. So dear friends, think on the grace of God. Think of what he's done for you. Start living out of what he's done for you. And start giving out of what he's done for you. I want us to take just a moment and just ask God how we might do that. As, we, well, as we're bringing our tithes and offerings, because <laughs> uh, that's when we have it at this point in the service, I want you to think about how much God loves you and how that should inform how you love those around you, maybe specifically in this church body. Ask God, what does his love for you demand of you? And what can he possibly free you to do? Lord Jesus, I pray the gospel the wealth of your gospel would come crashing into our, the bank account of our souls this morning, and we would see how rich we are. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show each of us in this room how high and wide and deep and long is your love for us. I pray that we would see that every sin has been forgiven, that you have counted us as righteous. You love us no less and no more than your own son, Jesus. You've adopted us. You've made us your own. So God, I pray that we would find you to be our wealth and that we would trust you 
and we would invest our souls in you and not our money and not our ability and not our things. God, help us to let go as we know that you have hold of us this morning. God, do your work in this place. Make us this family, O oh God. We beg you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.